You're listening to He Kōrero, a community research podcast. Welcome to our second podcast series, Hoki Whakamuri Haere Whakamua, Thinking Back, Going Forward, our webinars and audio. Hear brave kōrero on kaupapa, like valuing worldviews and indigenous research, the power of refugee research, supporting New Zealand-born Pacific youth and white fragility. This webinar, Valuing Our Worldviews, Indigenous Community at Centre, was hosted by Community Research in October 2019. This podcast focuses on Indigenous community designers who are pushing the boundaries of community design. This includes spaces within academy, community development and design practice, and design principles. Their approach makes sure that Indigenous design knowledge and practice puts community voices front and centre. It brought together Dr. Rebecca Kiddle and Danielle Frommack. I Wallawani Jindawan to everybody. I'm a Butterwang woman of the UN Nation, which is on the south coast of uh, New South Wales. And I'd like to start, of course, by acknowledging all elders, past, present and uh, emerging and to express my gratitude for the teachings and knowledge that um, knowledge holders and elders and people who work with country and know um, culture have shared with me. It made a major difference to my PhD to have their uh, input and I named many of those people as co-authors and co-designers of my PhD because without their input, I, the PhD would never have existed. I'm here on Gadigal lands, which is in Sydney, and the Butterwang down the south coast is where uh, my mob are from. They were dispossessed um, around 150 years ago, and they took a boat and travelled um, up the coast to Gumbangia country. Um, that movement was, uh, I don't think, an unfamiliar movement. My mob have been moving up and down that coast for a very long time. I grew up mostly in Bundjalung country. So there's a song line that exists all the way up and down the coast of New South Wales and people and stories and knowledges have traveled that song line for a very long time. I'm gonna to talk today a little bit about, uh, actually in a way, quite a small part of my PhD, but it turned into a major impact for my PhD because it changed everything about how the PhD was um, understood and, how, and why I did it like I did and how I uh, managed working with my family and extended kin networks and community. It came about as an, due to an experience that I had in, a, in actually a museum and it turned into a collaborative work uh, with my colleague Sophie Herbert who works at UTS Library. She and I have a, a very lovely relationship. So when I had this unusual experience in the in the museum, I was able to speak to her and say, this weird thing happened and I don't know what to make of that, but we have to do something. And she could see the opportunity in that. And she decided that uh, it, there was a chance for us to develop a new way of referencing Indigenous materials because uh, of the referencing system that UTS uses, which is the... Harvard uh, UTS system. So this is it on the on the website now. The idea with this um, referencing is that Indigenous people are, under, are referenced in a different way 
than non-Indigenous people. Um, it's a, it, you know, like in a way, a lot of people uh, wouldn't understand why referencing was a big deal for, for me, but it actually, as, as I'll explain later, impacted back into the PhD. Um, the idea is that not only is the nation or country or language group being referenced, if we don't know where somebody's from, because often in colonial processes, this wasn't recorded, instead of saying uh, unknown, it, we've changed the language a little bit to unrecorded. This is because so often when Indigenous articles and objects were um, taken or removed or dug up from country, um, it was the person who dug it up or took it or removed it that's, whose name is recorded and not the people or the person or the country or even the group from which it comes. It's a small change in language, but the idea is that the language starts people to think a little bit differently about how these colonial processes have impacted uh, First Peoples, even in a small way of referencing. I want to talk a bit about how that actually went into my PhD, um, because I was developing it as I was doing my PhD. So it, it effectively formed how certain parts of my PhD were um, being done. And the title is The Reindigenization of Space, Weaving Narratives of Resistance to Embed Nura, Country in Design. Nura is the word for country uh, in Duraga language, which is the language my ancestors spoke. Aboriginal people have always known, loved, um, dreamt, narrated, used and occupied our spaces. And I wanted to readdress an unbalance that was happening um, that I was reading where um, there was non-Indigenous people uh, speaking for Indigenous people about land, space and country. And I felt quite uncomfortable about that and wanted to address it, that unbalance. Of course, uh, to do that, I had to uh, find Indigenous people speaking about these things. And this re regularly meant not being in my own discipline because it's a, a discipline with a dearth of information. And also it meant that I was recording people's voices rather than using traditional um, sources of academic sources like written sources. So, and that changed how I did even things like um, the literature review, which I had a problem with even in itself. Very early on community were important to my PhD, uh, as was being on country, being with elders. Um, and my family uh, were key to my PhD as well. Cultural practice came into it and um, cultural stories and yarning, which is a, a culturally appropriate way of uh, communicating with Aboriginal people. So cultural practice uh, became really important. And this is a, a little rhyme that I'm just gonna share with you, out to country, back to the sea, which you can use uh, while we're, for instance, weaving, which is the way that my family um, experience or work with our culture in terms of our um, reclaiming practice. Uh, and this is talking about a way of remembering how to do a particular type of weave out to country, back to the sea, because my family have strong relationships to the sea. We're saltwater people, which means effectively we need to be places where we can rust. But this is how the referencing started to come into my PhD. As I've mentioned, I called the people who were sharing with me, who were 
um, part of my community, my extended kin and my family, my direct um, family, I called them co-authors and co-designers. And it felt uh, more appropriate to me than calling them participants or informants. If I just called them an informant, I felt like I was disrespecting their knowledge and not acknowledging who they were to me and who, to, who they were to the research and the PhD. It was really important to me that not only were the people who uh, I was referencing were acknowledged in the, re in the reference list at the end, but also in the uh, footnotes. Um, that meant that I spent a lot of time finding out about these people who I was uh, referencing and um, it became really important to me to make sure I did as best as I could to get that correct and to acknowledge them all as first peoples and acknowledge that the knowledge didn't come from me it came from them and what I was saying um, came from a place I came sorry what they were saying came from a place uh, so I did my best uh, to acknowledge who how they how they identify themselves and where they came from or come from I then also, uh, because as I mentioned, yarning was a very important part of my PhD, and I started, I developed a new way of referencing yarning. And just to explain yarning a little bit, as I've mentioned, it's a it's a culturally appropriate way of talking to Aboriginal people. Um, and there's there are actually it's actually also at least in Australia a recognised uh, method of research. There are steps to it and there are, there are ways that uh, you can do it in, in a respectful way um, and it's important to do it in a respectful way. My grandmother, bless her, she, she's a, like an expert yarner without ever knowing that she was, what she was doing was called yarning. And so I spent a lot of time with her um, throughout the PhD understanding a lot of things from her. I learned a lot from her through the process. Um, and I and understanding how she viewed the world um, and her particular viewpoint um, and trying to make sure that actually the PhD spoke to my grandmother, um, which was uh, challenging to say uh, the least because you're expected to use an academic language. And my grandmother she left school at, a, at quite a young age uh, because she, she wasn't, didn't, wasn't given the opportunity to continue school. So I had to use a language that in the PhD that my grandmother could understand or explain myself a lot. So I felt like by writing for my grandmother, I was writing for a lot of other people as well because I was explaining a lot what I was talking about. If I used a big word, I'd always put in an explanation for it. If I used a language word, I'd always put in as best I could um, a way of explaining what that meant in English. So this yarning um, became really important to my PhD because there was such a dearth of information from Aboriginal people talking about my topic. And so I needed to go out and find people to share with me um, into the PhD what it meant to them to be part of this spatial paradigm that we're in and, and how they understand country and those kind of questions. And I felt like um, just calling it an interview was disrespectful to that process. So I developed also a way of referencing yarning that include the yarns and their um, place of location, where we recorded that yarn and what date. So it did change um, how I responded to a lot of things by doing this type of um, referencing. 
I'm just going to talk briefly as well, because as I mentioned earlier, the out to country, back to the sea comes back in here. The end result of my PhD was that I, I developed uh, or named up, I, like, I prefer to call it, some methods of cultural and spatial practice. These methods that I'm going to very, very, very briefly talk to you about, they are things that I've used in my uh, practices without knowing I was using them until I examined them. And then I had to examine, of course, where they came from in terms of where they came from in me so that I knew how to use them. And it came through, largely they came through my family, through uh, extended kin networks and uh, people who were sharing through with me in my PhD. So just to explain what this means, the resilience, resistance, relationality and reclamation, these were my ways of understanding decolonization. Um, these were the words that I was choosing to engage with. Um, amongst others, of course. Um, and these, were, these words were are related to narratives and stories that the co-designers and co-authors of the PhD shared with me throughout the course of the PhD. And so what I was trying to do was demonstrate how, um, in very small ways, particularly Aboriginal women, um, because that's the group I was wanting to work with, um, and in, in the end, their voices just became too loud for me to uh, ignore and their stories became too strong to ignore. Um, so these were the ideas that were coming or the, the themes that were coming through their stories. I related the stories and those narratives to the um, process or the methods. So the first one is a making yarning process. This is a method of using dialogue to lead practice. It's relating, of course, to that yep to yarning, which I've described a little bit about um, but it's also asking you to make while you yarn and what happens is that the the conversation and the the thought processes and the dialogue gets captured into whatever you're making the next one mapping through walking practice this is a really important one um, because aboriginal people have always walked country firstly to move around of course but as much as anything it's a, pair, a process of caring for country that's a um, really important process because it sh the, that process of um, moving and uh, through country helps you to understand and know country and also hear what country is saying back to you. Uh, storying, making knowledge. This is um, through sharing narratives. So um, it's partially to do with listening, really important, the story storytelling process uh, of First Peoples, uh, at least for Aboriginal people, it's really important that you are um, not only the, listening to the story as a listener, but the story is um, not being told in vain, if you get what I'm saying. So there's a reciprocal process to this sharing um, story, pro uh, sharing of stories that, in, that both parties in the story make telling process, both the teller of the story and the, the, the hearer of the story has and it's it's more involved than what I've described but it's basically that both parties need to be um, engaged in this reciprocal process in order that that the knowledge can be shared uh, correctly that the stories can be uh, accessed in terms of the, their correct meaning um, and that they're that uh, people are um, engaging with whatever level they're at in that story so um, it's about this. So this is again a little bit about making, but also about learning how to listen in a different way. Um, 
to and particularly engaging with narratives. And then the final one, the responsive cultural practice. This is uh, related, of course, to all the other ones. It's about how do we understand the signals of country and follow those signals. In this one, I'm asking people to engage with different parts of their senses, not their sight, as much as what we, you know, we seem to be quite engaged with sight as uh, designers and architects and generally. But I'm asking people to understand that country doesn't, we, we're not, it's not a one-way process with country um, where we are just uh, the ones giving all the messages. Country gives messages to us too and we need to be receptive and sometimes that receptive way of receiving doesn't, isn't in what we see. And so it's asking people to sense in a different way that those ideas about, um, or the, the messages rather that country is, is passing to us. There's a lot more involved in these. And as I said, these, these are just methods that I've started, not started, I've been using them for a very long time since I was quite young, but I didn't, hadn't only, had only just started to evaluate where I understood these from. And these were gifted to me through my family, through extended people uh, in my akin networks, and um, I guess through experience and practice. Um, but I don't claim them to be mine, which is why I say I named them up rather than I, I created them. And I just wanted to say, Walawani Jindawan, this means uh, safe travels, or what it actually means is I hope you had a safe journey here and I wish you a safe journey home. And that's from Doriga, which is on the south coast. Thank you so much. You're listening to Hear Kōrero, a community research podcast hosted by Dr. Rebecca Kiddle and Daniel Frommack. Yeah, so I, I thought I would talk a bit about uh, a project that we've been working on called Imagining Decolonised Cities. Uh, so I do have a slightly odd background, I guess, um, and I've actually moved, just recently moved to the architecture school, so I am no longer in environmental studies. Um, but um, having worked in an environmental geography type department and now moving into an architecture school, um, it's really kind of, I guess, signaled to me the different ways people think about space particularly and the ways in which people understand power relationships in space and unfortunately many designers don't <laughs> that well so my work is particularly interested in, in the politics of space production and how um, the kind of colonial project hasn't really created the kind of form that supports the way uh, Māori whānau, iwi, hapu uh, want to live lives I thought I'd start by just reading out just a couple of paragraphs from um, a keynote speech by Ani Makaide. So it's actually the proceedings of a hui that happened a few years ago, and there's a whole lot of amazing written uh, chapters that speak to the idea of kaupapa Māori research. And partly I was looking up, you know, people use kaupapa Māori research or decolonizing research in ways that perhaps are quite tricky to understand sometimes. You know, it seems quite a sort of esoteric term. So I was trying to sort of ground myself and think, well, what, what exactly does that mean? Um, so I'll read a little bit and then, um, then we'll explore that. Okay. So she says, During my early years as an academic, the racism and colonialism I encountered in the university system came as a shock. I had not realised that educated people were capable of being so ignorant. Our Pākehā colleagues saw no problem with conducting research on Māori, 
regarding as churlish our disinterest in their findings and expecting universal acknowledgement as indigenous experts. They appeared generally surprised when we rejected invitations to join their research teams on projects over which we had no control. That surprise, it should be added, rapidly turned to irritation and even anger when on occasion they required nominal Māori involvement to lend credibility to a research proposal but found us uncooperative. They used their already well-established well reputations to secure access to contestable funding, thereby cementing their own privileged positions as senior researchers, while denying opportunities to more junior colleagues to gain experience through the pursuit of their own research interests. The self-serving nature of the standard research practice, which demanded that any new project begin with a literature review, ensured that the work of these established researchers not only defined the parameters of new research, but also assumed an ever-increasing degree of authority each time it was referred to by later works. These people couched their writing, and even their conversation in some instances, in a language that was unintelligible to all but a select few, this effectively precluded the subjects of their research from making any comment on the value of their work, not that it occurred to them that the research subjects ought to have the opportunity to comment, and simultaneously bolstered their own sense of self-importance. I had never before seen language so expertly or blatantly wielded as a tool of self-elevation through the purposeful silencing and demeaning of others. So <laughs> there's a whole lot in that, and um, I can imagine that many Māori and Indigenous researchers across the world would be nodding their heads in, in sort of support of Ani's words. And so I thought I'd just explore what I see as sort of five key, key ideas that she, that she brings out there. And the first one bringing who should do research on with Māori or Indigenous communities, um, which is a hairy topic. Um, motivations for uh, involving Māori researchers, or how do you use your research superpowers for good, the dangers of a lit literature review, the importance of testing interpretations of findings um, to kind of create research that has integrity in the, in the views and the, um, and the aspirations of the communities that you're working with, and the language of analysis and dissemination. So I thought um, I'd use the project that we'd, we've been working on for a little while um, as a kind of a case study, I guess, to explore some of this. Who should do the work? And I often get this, this question from students, um, you know, who, 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 can, who has the ability to do, to do research with Māori and hopefully not on Māori? And I guess one of the things we explored when we were doing this Imagining Decolonised Cities project was what should the, our research team look like? Firstly, who's responsible for decolonisation? Is it just Māori or is it others? Who should lead such a project? So this, in the end, was our, was our research team. And um, so along the top, there's three women, Bianca, Jasmine and Jenny, and they were all... Um, I guess I would call them community researchers or iwi researchers, so they were all Ngāti Tōr because we were, were working on Ngāti Tōr whenua or land, 
And then we had a kind of cross-disciplinary team of people from Māori studies, uh, people from architecture and people from uh, geography, alongside a couple of students at the bottom, Tui and Chantal, who sort of support, supported the work and, and that was really about building their capacity as well. So in the end, I, I led the project and whilst some might say, oh, that's great, you know, this, this has to be a Māori-led project, which I absolutely think it did need to be, what would have been even better is if it was a Ngāti led project. Um, so we, we acknowledge that, um, but there's a whole, as many of you will know, there's a whole lot of issues around time capacity of iwi members who are constantly being called on to do a whole lot of stuff being you know, consulted or hopefully engaged around a whole lot of issues. And so, um, so I led the project in the end. Um, but we were also really careful to actually include Pākehā in our research process. So we were very careful that Māori led the project, but we were also mindful that the work of decolonisation can't just be the work of Māori. And in fact, the bulk of the work needs to be done in Pākehā circles. Um, so we tried, we tried very hard to kind of create this sort of treaty relationship, uh, both within the team. So we had, um, we still outnumbered our Pākehā colleagues, but there were two Pākehā academics involved in them, and we had a Pākehā student. But, but, but again, I think when you're, when you're doing something that's particularly Māori-focused, it has to be weighted on the side of, of Māori voices. And I guess that led me to think about um, the way that scholarship or research is thought about across across the world, uh, in universities, um, out out in the community, that kind of thing. And I think um, I, I was sort of thinking about Max Weber's uh, words, where, where he makes this distinction between activist and academic. And these are his definitions: activists whose words are weapons, and academic whose words are plowshares to loosen the soils of contemplative thought, a disinterested scholar, which seems to me to be a bit crap, really, and, and a sort of false distinction um, where somehow we're meant to be these kind of, I mean, I can't imagine being disinterested in anything that uh, I do in terms of research because all research is political. Uh, it's political in terms of how you choose your research question. It's political in terms of who's involved. It's political in terms of who you engage with. Um, you know, is it is it your whānau? Are you kind of elevating the voices of our kin and our wider tribal groups? Or are you allowing kind of words of those who have, who have had every privilege ever um, to continue to kind of uh, pervade scholarship? So this idea of neutrality is, is, is obviously culturally loaded. And I think it, what it does do is it supports dominant theories like neoliberalism and, and so on, because they sort of are easily, they easily come to the fore and they, they disallow kind of alternative voices, shall I say. Hopefully this is not too sim simple 101 for you all, but uh, bear with me and hopefully it's here. So, so relatedly, thinking about, you know, what is the frame we look through? Who are we? You know, who are we in all this? And there's a really nice video, if you get time, from Dr. Paparangi Reid, where she's talking about privilege in relation to the, the researcher, the researched, and trying to move away from very superficial analyses of the reason why Māori have, I don't know, high prison rates is because, you know, they're, they're bad people. 
as opposed to thinking, well, hold on, what are the sort of structural, structural kind of underpinnings of colonialism, racism, and privilege and power that have meant that Māori find themselves in those positions, to be simplistic about it. Okay, so second key idea, what are people's motivations? Like being very clear about motivations for being involved in Māori or involving Māori researchers and projects, um, or even uh, motivations for doing projects with Māori communities. I think it's super important that um, it's really clear from the outset why, why you'd want to do that. So I'll go through this really quickly, but who, who's benefiting from the research? Is it you? Uh, it just reminds me of a, um, we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about a design, an indigenous design um, group, and I won't name them, who is led by uh, two white scholars. And um, on, they've developed a charter around indigenous design and they've noted their names at the bottom, sort of written by, you know, George and Susie or whatever their names are. Um, and it, and it, just, it just highlighted for me the fact that they had um, claimed authorship of a charter of indigenous design as to white academics. Um, the importance of understanding who benefits from your work <laughs> and whether one should benefit from one's work. I remember a long time ago talking to Ngāhoi Etawa Kōtuku about a book she had written in collaboration with a whole lot of her um, sort of re research, I'm going to use the word participants, where she, she had um, she had essentially been the pen on the project, but she wanted to acknowledge the mātauranga or the knowledge that was coming from her community, so she you know, added a whole lot of people as her co-authors. And that's not very well recognised by the academic institutions that we sit in, unfortunately. Are you in it for the long haul? How, how, do, you, um, how do you see yourself um, developing relationships over the long term with the communities you're working in? And who should set research agendas? So again, I've heard academics like um, Professor Michelle Thompson-Fawcett talk where she's, you know, said she tries really hard to be dictated by the community around what her research agenda should be. Now, this is the complete antithesis to the way that most research happens, where we come up with this bright idea as this kind of amazing individual, and we say, okay, I'm going to do this, okay, who can help me kind of get to my end point? Um, so how do we kind of whakamana or build, empower the researched community um, to set that agenda and, and we kind of go along with that? Just quickly, you know, this sort of connects to ideas of um, Foucault's ideas about um, the, the inextricable link between power and knowledge, um, where he's talking about the fact that, you know, a lot of kind of Western understandings of, of science and of of knowledge production, assume that there's sort of one way of thinking about the world, one truth, as opposed to there may be a whole range of different truths out there. Again, the idea that there's somehow this puzzle of understanding of knowledge and we're, and we're, create, we're sort of discovering one piece of it. And once we've done, done that bit, that's, that's done now, there's no other, you know, that's the truth. Um, which I, I encounter quite a lot in the, in, in the um, 
at the university. In fact, when I first started at Victoria, I remember being in a, I was asked to give a talk about mātauranga Māori or Māori knowledge and how it might be important for teaching and research. And I got up and I was just sort of talking about, you know, the importance of it in terms of kind of, you know, acknowledging knowledge sets that students might be coming to university with and da da da. And this one guy stood up and said, excuse me, but there are no other worldviews. There's only one type of science because science is fundamentally true. Um, so that's a very strongly held, very strongly held tenant of a, a lot of, particularly the sciences, I have to say. Um, yeah, which I think we need to combat. Um, so, so how do we use our research superpowers for good? Well, I would put at the top of the list the promotion of self-determination. You know, if, our, if all of our kind of research agenda is how do we, how, is about how are we supporting um, self-determination, then, then in some ways um, we can't go far from the, from the right path or the right paths if we're understanding many, many right things. So, you know, collaborative and interactive approaches kind of, I think, push us along that, that right path. Um, understanding who has control, understanding whoever we are, whatever whatever our backgrounds, we have to be accountable to the, the people that are involved in our research, accountable to the long term, not just, you know, after you've kind of written your research report. Um, and, and thinking about methods that are not deficit producing. So there's lot, I think there's long now been, well, at least in some circles, and move away from this kind of deficit approach to thinking, okay, what, what is the potential here? What is the creative and knowledge potential of Māori communities? So in, in our project, Imagining Tualized Cities, thinking about methods, thinking about ways in which we might um, encourage self-determination, we, we drew on this idea of utopianism. So getting people to imagine what's possible and imagine hopeful possibilities. That was partly about just sort of countering these Tina, there is no other alternative uh, discourses that have come out of things like neoliberalism. And it was also about drawing on the creative collective imaginary to go, go beyond what we know already or what's possible or what's kind of existing. These were our aims. Our dangers of a literature view, um, they produce certain kind of results. We don't often critique who, who's writing, who's, who the existing scholarship is coming from. I had a student the other day who wrote something about Indigenous design and she'd put a whole lot of authors down and four out of the five authors were actually non-Indigenous and she had claimed them as Indigenous because, because of the type of stuff they were writing about and because they had never positioned themselves in their writing. So are they indigenous? Are they, are they well-respected allies? Do they acknowledge their positionality? And who's funding the work? Um, and if we kind of move from thinking about literature reviews as, as a thing to thinking about a conceptual or evaluative framework where a literature review might be just one kind of method, then I think that might be a kind of better framing. So fourth idea, importance of testing interpretations of finding. Um, and I've just put up Pires concepts which I think are super crucial here um, you know this whole process is around respect face-to-face -face, kanohi kita kanohi um, doing stuff in collaboration making sure people um, retain dignity across these processes 
um, sharing knowledge without arrogance, which is something that academics are not very good at, I have to say, and understanding what the rules are, the rules of the game. And I think the way you do that well is, again, by having teams that are, that are rooted in the, in the places that you're working in, that have those people at the forefront of your research team. Um, because then there's this constant negotiation of value. You know, what, what is worth producing? Who should you produce it for? When should you produce it? And why should you produce it? And that's happening throughout the process as opposed to kind of getting to the end and going, okay, we'll come back to you and say, okay, what do you, what do you want? You know, what do you want us to do next kind of thing? And this, this hopefully is a no-brainer, but relationships are crucial. Um, and there's a whole lot of relationships that happen in, in, in research uh, projects. And, and for us in our Imagining Colonial Cities projects, they've really been at the heart of, of the success of that project. And, you know, in academic terms, it probably wasn't that successful at all. We've got no journal papers out of it. You know, we haven't produced much in terms of written publications. But, you know, I now go out to dinner. We have a sort of kind of bi-monthly dinner with, with the woman uh, we work with on those projects. And we kind of continue to foster new ideas about where to next. And finally, the language of analysis and dissemination. So we, we thought quite carefully about... Um, as I say, we didn't produce journal papers, um, but how do, how do you disseminate work in a way that um, doesn't dumb it down because people aren't stupid, um, but just makes it accessible and you know and and relevant to their lives and situations and what have you? Um, so we're in the process of developing a board game called the Decolonizer, which is um, was actually one of the entries into our um, I didn't talk much about this, but we held a public urban design competition out in Porirua, um, where we kind of uh, gathered a whole range of different ideas from different people. And this was one of the entries that didn't actually win, but we thought it was a really cool idea. And so we've started pro um, producing the game or, or refining the game. And I just played it yesterday with a whole lot of architecture students down in Christchurch. And, and the whole thing is about sort of sparking conversations about what exactly is colonisation um, and what is decolonisation and, and, and trying to sort of decolonise a whole bit of land. We're still working on it, but, um, but it's actually proven at least successful in, in creating space for conversation. So these are the sort of five key things that I think might be important to think about. You're listening to Hekore Roa a community research podcast.